Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled to be talking to Jay Boberg, who's somebody who before uh, I got to know him, and I've known Jay for a very, very long time now, but um, he was someone who was like a, a figure of total fascination because he ran the most important independent record company. Um, maybe still to this, you know, there are a few companies, I guess Sub Pop has a claim. Uh, there are a few record companies I think now that could say they were in in the same sort of sphere of influence. But I think the argument could also be made that none of them would have had a roadmap if it weren't for what you did, Jay, with IRS Records, a label that had uh, REM most notably and uh, B-52s, right? And and originally- Go-Go's. Or, yeah, Go-Go's. Concrete Blonde, Finding Cannibals, English Beat. Yes, uh, mo- most notably gems, REM. So As I said, most notably- most notably REM for uh, this particular podcast. And, uh, and, and your, your, you know, your career to me and your life really is fascinating because you've had a number of these moments of being able to choose what direction you wanted to go in and kind of having to bet on yourself to be able to figure it out. And you found a way to do it and indeed to figure it out. And um, you're, you know, for the last long number of years, you've had this uh, vineyard that's as kind of critically renowned as your musical acts were, and that's Nicholas J in um, Oregon. Uh, You make uh, incredible wine. I'm much more of a music expert than I am a wine expert, but I know enough to know how good uh, your wine is. And um, I'm really thrilled to get to talk to you in this way and for people to get to, you know, hear about uh, how you've thought through the challenges of trying to make a mark for distinctive things in a world that isn't always on the lookout for that. Well, I appreciate it, Brian. And it's nice. It's nice to be here with you. And it's uh, I've uh, listened to your podcast many, many times. You've had some quite uh, stunning and interesting guests and uh, we'll, do, we'll do our best to to meet up to that 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 level today. But it's it, it's good. It's good fun to be here with you. Well, we, we have to because also the lady in your life for the last very long time is one of the most important people in the world to me for since uh, I'm 21 years old. So we, we have to, you know, we have to do well enough that she won't be disappointed. Well, we do need to do a shout out to Lynn Schaffron because she's the most important lady in my life as well. And um, yes, and, and listen, the, we, we know who runs the show, Brian. Yes. Uh, no, it's true. I, I'll just say, yeah, Lynn, who is, uh, I, I guess, you know, your partner in life is um, someone who's been like a sister to me since I was in my early, very, very, very early 20s. And it's just been a, uh, one of the smartest people I know and also one of the one of the best human beings I know, uh, which, you know, made me really reconsider what I thought of you, to be honest, when she decided <laughs> she was in love with you. It made me really open to the possibility. Exactly. It's like, wait a minute, this guy Hold on a second. as I was thinking. He's, it's Lynn's fault. Ja- wait, Jay? some quality in there somewhere. I mean, yeah. come on. Really? Jay Boberg? Um, really? Hey, man, let's start here, I think. I'm always fascinated, I think people who listen are, by, by sort of like the road people take when they're young, especially looking back, you know, you're a few years older than I am, but we're close enough to the same generation. And it's interesting now to look back for me, too, because you, it, it seems like there was a plan, but of course there wasn't. So or there was a plan, but it wasn't the plan that you thought would end you up here, I imagine. So when you were a kid, and you were listening to music and playing guitar or whatever and being good in school. How did you think as you were, you know, heading off to college or leaving college? What did you sort of think? the path was going to look like for you? What were your ambitions? What did you hope for? Well, I was lucky in the sense that um, I I had passion for music early on. I started playing uh, classical guitar when I was seven. My parents were gracious enough to take me to different teachers. uh, I was in San Francisco initially and then in, in the Los Angeles area. And I had a teacher named Joel Valdivia, who was a real top, top quality classical guitar player and teacher. And my mom drove me there all the time. And, and I, I did it not because I was forced to, my, not because my parents said, you must do this or something. It was because I was really into it. And I spent, and I had a paper route and I spent all my money buying records. The first single I bought was The Love and Spoonful, Do You Believe in Magic? I first concert I went and saw was James Taylor at the Hollywood Bowl. I think I got my dad bought it for me for my like. Wait, but how how did nylon string, uh, a classical Segovia guitar lead you to rock and roll? Well, it it was about. 
I guess it was about just the exposure to it. I mean, the playing the guitar was sort of my expression and I didn't really play. I, I would try to figure out songs that I heard on the radio and so forth on my guitar, on my nylon string. And it, it's true. I have to admit, I didn't even own a steel string guitar till I was like 15. Right. But the transition, Brian, was when I went and saw the who at the forum, I convinced my mom I was 15. My my buddy who I worked at this restaurant with as a busboy had gotten two tickets and the, who was playing the, on the Quadrophenia tour. Sick. And they were playing the forum on Thanksgiving night. And I got my mom to have Thanksgiving dinner at noon so that I could go. And I don't know why she let me go. I would never let my kids go. But um, And we went and that was a life-changing experience. I really did not want to play classical guitar from that point forward after watching Pete Townsend. And those I guys. was going to say, and that was Keith Moon. Was That was Keith Moon died oh, yeah. in 79, right? So I think. So he would have, he no, was no, still. No, no, no. This was 74. Right. So yeah. Yes. 74. In incredible. Was, they were at their peak. That's hilarious. You know, my dad, there's a lot of, my dad took me. So yeah, I think you're eight years older than I am. I'm 55. And, and, uh, cause I saw you graduated college in 80. I graduated college in 88. And my dad though, I think in 73, I guess. No, right after. So, uh, took me to see Tommy in the movie theater in LA. I was with him on a business trip. And, it, and I was like eight, man, or nine or 10, like maybe 10. It came out in 75, maybe. And and I will say you are a changed person after the first time you interact with something like that, right? You, you are different if you're open and that thing hits you at a certain impressionable period in your life. It's, uh, it's kind of an overwhelming thing. And music, you know, you and I have met so many people and we both work together in music and discovering acts and having the passion for acts. But when you meet people, there are people to whom music is the soundtrack of their life. And then there are people who, to whom music is nice. I mean, they have it on, they might yeah. listen to it, it's whatever. I literally lived, you know, my, my emotions, my intellect, everything was influenced by music. I spent every dime I had either on stereo equipment, records, and at that time I have to say vinyl records, or, 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 or musical equipment. Um, that was it. I mean, that was everything that I did. And so all those bands, at the, I mean, I listened to everything. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the Zappa documentary that just came out no i have it on the queue but i haven't watched it yet it's yeah. really good and it's it's the only disappointing thing is it's not you don't get any amazing performances but you just see what a genius this guy was and from a sociological standpoint from a political standpoint and yeah. just smart i mean That's, just didn't play by the rules you know said no no this is not right we're not doing this we're going to do it this way and he did and I remember him being a huge guitar influence. I thought he was one of the best guitar players ever and at the time. And those people really had an impact on 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 my life, on on your life. That that was what they did. So when you talk about something like Zappa, and of course like like you said to people like us and and for me, yes, music and books and movies, they were all that I cared about other than the New York Knicks, right? They were just like, my life was completely overtaken with all that stuff. Um, though I didn't know what the direction would end up being. But I was thinking about yesterday, I was talking to someone about missing persons. And so like, I never saw Zappa, but I did get to see Terry Bozio and Warren playing guitar and yeah. that whole, you know, what that band was, which was like an offshoot of the Mothers of Invention. And like, the level of musicality was absurd. But when I think about the trajectory of your career, do you think the fact that it was these sort of subversive artists, because Zappa, though he had mainstream hits, you had to go digging around to get Zappa when you were a kid growing up in LA and really understand beyond Valley Girl or one or two songs what he was doing. So were you chasing that stuff down for yourself? Were you Absolutely. diving in? Yeah, and I, I was, and I mean, I, I was. It wasn't just Zappa; it was bands like you know, Gentle Giant, and and all these sort of uh, different jazz, Al Di Miola and Jean Luc Ponty, and there was a radio station in L.A. called KNAC, and um, it was in Long Beach, and it's no longer anything, but it was 
the epitome of alternative radio, so to speak. And there were some DJs on there and they played whatever they want. And so the exposure that I had then back in the day when you really only had, you know, three network TV yeah. channels yeah. And, and a handful of stations, there was KLOS and a few others, uh, KMET in LA, but KNAC was really the one that exposed me. But listen, early on, you were asking the question about direction and what I wanted to do. When I was in high school, we promoted some shows. We did a show at our high school. Me and this other guy, Dave Zislis, had this idea, well, we can book a show at our high school. Why not? Yeah. And we were involved in the student programming. And so we brought a band called Honk to our, our uh, they did I don't a, remember them. Yeah. a soundtrack of Five Summer Stories that was quite a big deal at the time, big surf movie. They played the high school. Then we booked Tim Weisberg and Kenny Rankin, yeah. who came and played our high school. And then we booked Genesis to play our high school. Which version of Genesis? Which version of Genesis? It was just after Gabriel left. So it was right. Trick of the Tail. It was post Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and, and right. Trick of the Tail. And, and we were doing that. And then in between high school and college, I started this production company, me and my friend, and we did some shows. We did Gentle Giant up in Santa Barbara. We did John Clemmer. Um, and then I went to UCLA and all I wanted to do was book concerts. And so we, I got, I got myself, helped this guy get elected to be campus events commissioner. This guy, Chris Lampson, who's going on to be a big showrunner in TV. And he uh, and I started the concert program and we booked Bob Marley, we booked B-52s, we did the first Talking Head show in California, we did, um, uh, well, uh, just a ton of different bands. And a big jazz series, Pat Metheny, Al Jarreau, Michael Franks, um, it was a very wide, and I think that was what was so interesting about my upbringing musically was the fact that I was, I knew about jazz, I knew about uh, Frank Zappa. I knew about pop music. I mean, I didn't really listen to much pop. Were music. you reading? Because I remember, like, so back then, this is before the internet and really before MTV. Well, you know, I knew the business because of my father. I knew about the record business, but the music I was mostly interested in, other than things like, I mean, I think you know, my dad signed the Love and Spoonful and was their absolutely. publisher and everything. So your first record, I mean, it's funny that there's that thing in True. common. You tell him. I'm sure I've told him, but you may not remember. But I, yeah, I'll tell him. I'll tell him because he <laughs> loves that stuff. Because, you know, that band just meant everything in the world to him. It changed his whole life, was changed and because of that. And what a record. If you listen to it today, do you believe in magic? It's like, I'm not sure pop songs get better than that. I well, mean, Summer in the City, Do You Believe in Magic, Daydream. Uh, th there are a few of those songs. Um, didn't have to be so nice. There are a few of those songs that are still like really uh, hold up. But it was I was going to ask you. In order to find the music I cared about, I had to find through going to independent record stores. So you would go to the chains, but then I would find like the weird independent record store that led me to all the British magazines. So I found sounds and NME and for me, Kerrang, cause I was a huge metal guy. And I then through those magazines, I would hear about, you know, you mentioned Genesis and I'm thinking about that period of time. And I remember the first and, and, and Zappa. And now I'm going to mention a band that nobody in America knows, but Marillion, you know, like I remember finding Marillion and Fantastic and uh, yeah, well, if you like that Genesis stuff and like that guy Fish, who was the leader of them, uh, and and we were able to be sort of just by your association with a band, you could be uh, or what you were into, it would kind of define your point of view in in a way in the in the world, and because what you did in IR, with IRS was um, so clearly land on a point of view, and I'm wondering if while you were having this very Catholic taste, you know, varied, looking at all this different material and bring it in. Were you starting or were you consciously building a point of view or did it just kind of happen that you had a point of view about this stuff? I think what I, what I was blessed with was um, having so much exposure to different kinds of music that I had a, a very certain, and I was not always right, but I thought I had a lot of conviction about what was quality. And quality could come in various different packages. And I think that really, this really served me even post IRS when I was running MCA Universal um, than it did at IRS. Because IRS was, was very innovative. We were signing people who were pioneering their space as it were. We, we, they were extremely um, strong points of view, but it was within a kind of IRS sort of, of band. When I got to MCA Universal, all of a sudden it was everything from, you know, hip hop to 
uh, to rock, to pop, to, to, to country, to all kinds of things. And I think having that sort of sense, that musical sense, and this is where the classical guitar thing really came in and being able to read music and write orchestration and all the rest of that stuff is that if I was in the studio with a band or I was watching a band, I had at least what I thought was a deep appreciation for the musicality of what they were doing. And so I ended up tending to sign bands. I mean, the first band that I really kind of signed or at least led us to sign at IRS was Oingo Boingo. Right. And I mean, musically- And you recognize Danny. You recognize that Danny was a genius somehow. These guys were such players and, and uh, very original. But I mean, just the musicality of that band was crazy. And I think I had that recognition or that ability to recognize because of all the different music that I'd been exposed to but and the music that I'd played. Sometimes I found that record executives who were musically trained, but then weren't producing records, you know, but were, were executives, that it all might could get, there's a very delicate balance. And I think it's really useful in terms of how you talk to artists and how you, because that, that can really backfire too, right, Jay? The guys who think, you know, the first thing they uh, talk to an artist they're signing is, is about the difference between a Les Paul and a Strat, and they're acting like they're really down with the music and the band kind of smells on them uh, that they wish they had the guitar strapped around them and they were on the stage. So how did you avoid, you know what I mean? That's a very fine line when you're also the person who's going to market it and sell it and you have to sign them, you know, Walking that fine line of like, hey, I'm not a frustrated artist. I'm actually here because I recognize you're brilliant, but I happen to come at this from a place of deep knowledge, right? That's hard to balance, I think. I think it came down to having respect for the fact that it's their record. It's their album cover. Like I always used to talk about when it was when we were coming up with ideas for logos and, and, and album covers and imaging and so forth, that the key here is to for us to help you find the image and the presentation that it best displays who you are. It's not about us trying to come up. We're not doing Coca-Cola here. We're yes. doing a reflection. And I think in the studio, I could say and did to, 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 to bands occasionally saying, you know, have you thought about that, that bridge? Do you really, is it, make sense that second time i said at the end of the day it's your call but but yes. what do you think and believe me bands would say you know what that's a fantastic idea but we're not going to do it that way and i'd go sure yeah right no just yes tossing in an idea um and i mean i remember distinctly especially with rem a couple times where i think i got into trouble with them where i i even by mentioning a couple times and they were always because they're my friends and we were so supportive of each other through that entire journey and I, I think that they, they kind of like, you know, really? And it was like, really, Jay? But I said, look, if I don't say, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's for you to say no is fine. I just want to have the opportunity to express what I'm thinking. And occasionally they would incorporate, bands would incorporate stuff. But yes. as long as you respect the fact that at the end of the day, it's their record and you can make suggestions, you can make comments, you hopefully can inspire them to achieve more, which is, what I think is sorely lacking in a yes. with people making records. They just allow people to just sort of, oh, well, I didn't think it was that good, but you know, that's the way they wanted it. Well, no, that's not okay. You have to challenge them. You have to attempt to at least get them to rethink it. At the end of the day, you can't make them do something. I guess Clive did. But I, well, there are people who can't at times, but yes, uh, how do you, I guess one way to think about it is as long as you're, I think about this in terms of what I do for a living, the best suggestions that come from um, a studio or a network are the ones when you can tell that they understand the thing you're trying to make and their note is serving is a suggestion on how to make the thing you're trying to do better as opposed to they want it to be a different thing. And uh, that's when you really are in uh, deep water, right? Uh, that's when you're really in, in trouble. And that in the music business happens all the time because the guy, like the Tom Petty line, you know, the A&R guy said he doesn't hear a single. And if you're not working with singles acts and you're not willing to say, look, I need a single or my bosses are going to make me drop the band. It could be a problem. But at IRS, obviously, that wasn't your mission, right? No, so we had very long-term uh, views. I mean, we assumed it was going to take us two, three albums in order to do it. It was all about building blocks. I used to have this thing I would say to the team and the IRS team and to the bands where I'd say, 
it's, it's, it's like the plague. We're trying to look, we're trying to get the plague. We get something going in, in Athens or Atlanta. Well, then let's circle it. Let's play those markets around it. Let's just build it up around it. And we knew that what these acts were doing was not mainstream. We knew that this was something that had to be discovery and you had to get all the tastemakers going and the right college radio stations. And that's why it sort of worked with me coming out of college radio. I mean, when I was at UCLA, doing the concerts to go back to your original question. Um, after doing that for a couple of years, uh, we did a lot of, of work with other doing free showcases for the different record companies and their new bands. And, and then A&M asked me to be a college rep for California. And so then doing that, I was then dealing with all the college radio stations in, in, in California and then a little bit in Arizona. And so when we started IRS and I put out that very first Buzzcocks record, which you have to understand at that point, IRS was Miles and me and Miles had hired me and said, look, I can't pay you anything, but we'll, you know, we'll co-own and I'll give you ownership. Miles Copeland, who is Stuart Copeland's brother, right? And right. Stuart was the drummer of the police and Miles managed the police. Correct. And that management of the police is what gave him access to Jerry Moss and Herb Alpert at A&M that when he asked them to do it, uh, if he could start IRS and if they would distribute it, they said yes, because basically Miles didn't ask for a lot of money, he didn't ask for really any money at all. He just said, I want to have complete freedom about putting out whatever I want to put out. And that's how we started it. And he was very, very smart. The deal turned out to be not so great from a business standpoint because AM effectively had a, a perpetual distribution uh, arrangement, which in effect was ownership. So that was really a drag. Right, because you couldn't, I didn't know you anything. Guys didn't own the, no, you guys didn't own the masters. The bands didn't own the masters. You couldn't flip the masters. And, and then also uh, it limited the amount because your revenue was limited or your profit, not your revenue. It, it limited the... Um, ability to keep certain artists as long as you would have liked because you couldn't compete with right we didn't have the margin and when the go-go's ended up being which is the first record that really blew up went number one and we sold you know many many millions um we didn't really make that much money i mean we made money don't get me wrong but AM made far more money than we did and in fact that success of that record really displayed to miles and i why that deal wasn't going to ultimately work um, and it was sort of the next deal that we did when we made the deal with Irving Azoff at MCA and we left. That was a much more of a traditional distribution deal. We owned the masters. We paid them a fee. They had we used had certain access to the radio promotion staff and so forth. But it became a very different deal. And we were much more of our own company at that part. But listen, A&M was great. And Jerry Moss was great. And they gave us the opportunity that we needed to do what we needed to do. And, and the only time he ever said we couldn't put out a record was the dead Kennedys. And we ended up putting that out independently outside, but um, holiday in Cambodia and putting out the dead Kennedys record was too much for Jerry Moss. I mean, that was a famous story at the, at the time um, for sure. I remember it very, very well. You know, when I started this podcast, what, the thing I said, I think on like the first episode was I was so interested in these moments in time when something remarkable happened and wondering how the people around it felt about it. And the example I often use is the moment that Mills, Buck, Barry and Stipe first played together in that church at, as a practice. And did those guys all look at each other? I've asked three of uh, the I've asked two of the four guys this question um, I asked Michael once, not on microphone, but I, I saw three of the four, but two on the on the microphone. But, you know, did they understand something very different was going on? But and you're a person who, I mean, you are the person who signed REM to their first real record deal, right? They released an, a single independently. They had a single out on... on uh, uh, in, Hip in, tone, in, like their own, like this indie, indie thing. But really talk through... Uh, what was going through your head, how you were exposed to it, what your process was to make the deal and what you thought the upside could be and, and why you thought that could be the upside. And, you know, was it for you when it happened? Like, I know the moment I first saw Tracy, I have a lot of witnesses to the fact that I, I understood that everything in my world had turned upside down. It was the same thing when I first walked into a poker club. And I knew Dave and I were going to write a movie about it. I've had like five moments where the world turned upside down. And I just have to know, and as some people, it's a much more deliberative, slow process. For me, things work very, when that happens, it happens quickly. But can you talk through the process of 
meeting REM, hearing them, figuring out you wanted to make a record and, and, and all of that? Yes, uh, happy to. Um, REM, I, I first got a cassette from uh, a guy who was in, in, in Atlanta or in Athens, actually, who was working as a college rep for IRS, a part-time. We had set up a little college named Mark Williams. And he oh, said- yeah, of course, me, he ended up being a great A&R guy at a lot of labels. Uh, in his Marks own right. Yeah, Absolutely. what a great guy. Yes. Great guy. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and still a good friend. Um, and, and he had sent me this five-song cassette, which ended up being Chronic Town. But he sent me this five-song cassette. It was a, like a, literally a cassette. And um, I listened to it and really liked it. I played it for a couple of the IRS staff. At the time, there was only like five or six. To be honest, did not get a warm and fuzzy response. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. And I kept listening to it. I'm driving in my car. I lived in Manhattan Beach at the time. I was driving up to Hollywood to the IRS offices on the AM lot. I kept listening to it and listening to it and listening to it. And what I picked up on was the, the originality how it was its own thing, completely its own thing. And secondly, was Michael's voice. And thirdly, was Mike Mills having bass be lead guitar in a band, um, which I, there are very few. I mean, the Who, you could argue, John Entwistle on certain songs, the bass was the lead guitar. But, you know, Mills' bass lines in those records, especially the early ones, those things, I mean, it was the driving, it was the melody in certain ways. And uh, his background vocals too, right? The two, thi- weirdly, like those two things. I agree with you, yes. Yeah, which were amazing. And so I really fell in love with it and I just kept, I had this conviction. I won't say that it was, you know, it wasn't like instant. The first time I heard it, I thought it was really like, wow, this is great. I kept listening to it. Well, it's murky. So, so it's a murky, this, I, I want to stay, go slowly because it's an interesting thing about when something's that different from everything else around it, it is very hard to adjust to its reality, I think. And right, it's like the first time you see a David Lynch movie. It's like, there's, I could, this odd feeling, there's something going on here. I, I have to tune to this frequency. I'm not on this frequency, so I don't actually know that I can exactly say, but something keeps drawing me to it. And then once you, once you get to that frequency, then it's like, holy fuck. So I remember like the first time, you know, Chronic Town, for people who are listening don't know, there's, you know, I mean, Wolves Lower, uh, Radio for Europe is the only thing that's close to like a regular song that someone might be able to identify really as a regular song. The rest of it, Michael's vocals are so low. As you say, the bass guitar is loud and making a lot of melody lines and and stuff. And I can imagine playing it for people and people looking at you like, dude, that sounds like a demo recorded on a boombox. Like, I can't make any sense of this. So what what do you think kept drawing you back to it? I I think it was all of it. I mean, the melodies, the, the vocals... It, it, I just couldn't, I couldn't stop playing it. So I reached out to the, um, the manager and found out where they were playing. Because for me, it was, was always- Was that Jefferson at that time? Was it, Je- was it Jefferson at that time? Jefferson Holt, right. Yeah. Jefferson Holt. He sent me back. He, they were doing a couple dates in Georgia and then they were playing New Orleans. And I thought, oh, New Orleans, that's convenient. Because right. my girlfriend who had graduated from UCLA and had it was like getting her master's degree at Tulane lived in New Orleans. Great. So I thought, perfect. I'm going to New Orleans. I'm going to see this band. I'll see Pamela. It'll be great. So I went down there and I saw them in this place called the Beat Exchange, which was in the quarter kind of towards um, towards Bywater. And it, it was there actually for a long time. And I went in to see the show and there was like four people there. Right. The Amazing. Club, the club owner was that was supposedly mixing the sound was like on smack. And Jefferson, who I said, I didn't say hi to the band before. I just sort of walked in. And Jefferson was like panicked because the sound wasn't. So he took over mixing, and which Jefferson will tell you was never really a mixing engineer by any stretch. Right. And I was completely blown away. I mean, I thought... You know, just those people that are listening that have seen REM. I mean, you know, Mike, uh, Michael was just completely captivating and so interesting to watch. And his vocals were even better live than they were uh, uh, on the record that I'd heard on the tape that I'd heard. And yeah, because Chronic Town has so much um, emphasis. Well, Chronic Town has so much emphasis on uh, the trebly side of his voice, but like the magic in his voice is in the ba- is in the bass part of his voice. And you yeah. know what I mean? Chronic Town, the way it's mixed, you don't you hardly get any of the 
the the richness of Michael's voice, right? It's it's. Uh, well, you get emotion. I think yes. one of the things that, like all great singers, and I mean, I, I would put Michael Stipe and Mary J. Blige uniquely in the same camp of people that I've had the great pleasure of being able to work alongside. It, they both have this amazing ability to convey emotion. Yeah, and if great. you ever wondered why people have this passion for REM, they don't, it's not just like, oh, I like this band or I like that song. They're like passionate about REM. Same thing with Mary J. Blige. I mean, especially women, the way that she could connect to women is unlike anything I've ever seen, especially African-American women, but it's not limited to that. It's everybody. And, and it's because of their voice and the way they sing and the, and the emotion that's transmitted. But at that live show, I decided right there, I mean, standing there, it was like I'd been listening to this cassette for two months and there I was and I know, forget it, man, I'm signing this band. And I pulled, I walked backstage afterwards. I mean, backstage, it was a shithole. Yeah, sure. I walked back and, and, and I said, hi, I'm Jay from IRS. And Michael, who was sitting like his knees up on, the, on a bench, he said, I was afraid of that. Uh, we, we just uh, sucked. And yeah. I mean, they thought they were terrible, which was ridiculous, incidentally. They were fantastic. And so we had lunch the next day. At, we met him at some sub place and... Um, I you know, said, look, I, whatever we got to do, I just love to partner with you. This would be something that I could throw myself in behind. And I think, you know, I was talking to somebody about the wine, our wine, about yes. Day the other day, and they were saying the connections between wine and music. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, you're, yes, you're selling something. When we would sign a band, when you sign bands, we, we signed them and we recorded them and we were trying to build their imaging and everything. And then we were trying to get people to ultimately buy it, to fall yeah. in love with it. Same thing with wine. But there's a big difference when you sign a band that you can authentically have that conviction that you truly believe down to the core of your body that this is special, that this is a totally unique artist that deserves to have the attention and, and, and adoration of you know, music lovers around the world. And it's the same thing with wine. If you're selling something because you think it fits the market or it's, it fits a product or it fits a need, that's a very different communication. And I think people yeah. react to you differently. And when I would walk into radio stations or walk into record stores or you know, with whatever gatekeeper or with journalists, and I would be playing them the cramps, or I'd play them Wall of Voodoo, or I'd play them R.E.M., they would always say to me, they, they would go, well, you know, I don't know if I feel quite the same as you do about it, but by God, do you believe this? I mean, this is as genuine of a passion that you have for this band. And it's the same with wine, right? If you make a wine that you truly believe is great and you, and this is wine, John Nicola and I are always making wine that we want to drink. It's not about, I want to sell. I want to make yes. wine that I want to drink. And then I'm hoping enough other people like what I like. Well, yeah, it's like, um, it's, it's like, there's a reason like what that Michael Azrod book is called, uh, this band could be your life. It's like, that's what you were in the business of doing, right? Is like. It's, it wasn't just a band. It, you you were trying to put things out there where that people would want to identify with. And I, I want to talk a little bit about that aspect of it because the way J, J, at this time, Jay Miles was uh, both the I guess the chairman of the company, and he, but he had the police to deal with. So it always seemed to me, just watching it, like a lot of this stuff was just left on you to deal with, even if your title wasn't president yet you it was basically you had to make these decisions and a lot of it just fell on you to do right at that time yeah i was very fortunate um it was a, it was a bit of a nightmare of being partners with miles but it was also a gift he recognized in me an entrepreneurial spirit and he recognized the musicality that, that i had and he was also in a situation where he was managing the biggest band in the world yes. or about to yeah. be the biggest in the world. And so he just wasn't around very much. I mean, when, when we first started, he was there for like three weeks with me and the little hut that we were in on the AM lot. And he said, I'll be back in two weeks. Uh, just don't worry, I'll be back in two weeks. I didn't see him for three months. Right. 
And so I ended up hiring Carlos to come in and do the artwork. I did the buzzcocks. I did the paste up and so forth. The artwork myself recognized very early on that this is not a skill set that I have. I can recognize what I like and don't like, but being an art director, nope, that's not good. You know what they say, Brian, it's, it's, more important to recognize what you can't do totally. as it is uh, to totally. recognize what Completely. you can't had the Had the hip tone record already gotten the Rolling Stone best single of the year when you saw them or did that no. happen after? That was after. And uh, so you sign them, you, you come back and how do you tell everybody at your company, uh, this thing you guys all thought was kind of mediocre where I love it. We're going to put it out just as it is because you didn't bring Don in yet, right? That was just the Mitch Easter produced thing and you put yeah. that thing out. So how did yeah. you how did you sort of like convince people there that this we're doing this thing? When, you know, talk about gatekeepers. I mean, when, you, when you're trying to break something totally different, it's really hard to enlist promotion people and marketing people. It's. I've, I've had that battle. It's very difficult to, uh, what was your style of how did, what was your style of convincing? Cause yeah, you're the boss. You could say it, but that doesn't do very much. So what was your style of en- enlisting people in your vision? By going out and, and me doing the initial exposure to certain trendsetters or people to which my staff looked at as kind of um, arbiters or temperature readers, if you know what I mean, in the marketplace. So I went out and got people interested. So I got Chris Morris at the LA Reader interested in it. And I got, you know, played it for Robert Criscow. And I got, I mean, so I went out and basically got people going. And and I don't want to, it's not like the IRS staff, first of all, I think there was like six of us at the time. Not like it's, it wasn't like you dealing with Electra where you come back and you got you know, 80 people that you got yeah. to try to convince. There was only six of us, I think. And I mean, at, at that moment. And so, I mean, they got on board. Initially, they were kind of like, what? Um, and Miles yes. was completely like, huh? I mean, he never, I mean, and he actually has said so, you know, publicly since that he just never really understood REM. Um, and so he kind of left me, and going back to your question, which I think is really important about the good and bad of being Miles Copeland's partner, was that the very fact that he did leave and he did let me just run it, right? I made decisions. He was just gone. I said, okay, I guess I need to figure this out for myself. I figured it out for myself and we did it. And not to say I was always right. I certainly made plenty of mistakes, but he let me do that. And there are not a lot of people who would allow a 20 year old kid to you know, run a business like that and sort of figure that stuff out. And him being gone, I think is partly why the partnership worked because if he is there all the time with his personality and his sort of dogmatic, like right. I like this, this is what we're doing, blah, 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 blah. It never would have worked. How and- did you look? I saw REM in 80 uh, opening for the police at or 81 at Shea Stadium. So how did you make that? And it was, I guess, uh, REM, the Go-Go's and the police. But how did you get Miles to agree to take the REM out if he didn't dig them? Like, because that was super early on in REM's life. I mean, they played a 20-minute set. That was a one-off. They didn't, uh, I mean, I think they did Ian Copeland, Miles' yes. brother, who had his own personal relationship oh. with the band and had met, actually met the That band. Shea Stadium, wait, that Shea Stadium gig was a one-off? I just happened to show up and it was REM? That's wild. I didn't know that. They did not do a, a, a ton of t- dates with the police. I don't remember how many they did. And maybe, you know, maybe uh, one of the band members will correct me. But but I, I don't believe they played that many uh, opening slots with the police. Um, the Go-Go's did. The Go-Go's yeah, no, I saw the Go-Go's with them a couple times. That actually yeah. broke, that's how the album went number one. Uh, was the the Go-Go's record was exploding and then they went out and started playing in front of 20,000 people a night and it sort of gave them the wider exposure that the record... Well, that document, you mentioned the the Zappa documentary, but the Alison Elwood Go-Go's documentary is fantastic, I think, also. She did a great job. And uh, and I saw the Go-Go's on on tour with the police at Madison Square Garden and that was different. That was incredible. And the Go-Go's were, you felt half the place was there because they were already signed on. But but R.E.M., what I was going to say is seeing them in that concert... And this speaks to your vision because, you know, three years later, R.E.M. became my favorite band to this day, my favorite band of all time, right? I'm an obsessed person about R.E.M. I saw him that night at Shea. I didn't get any, I could not understand it at all. I mean, I was a kid. I was, you know, whatever, in 80, I was 
15 years old, 14. But I could, didn't understand it. The songs, I, I couldn't find the songs in there and I just missed me. So it's an amazing thing that you were prepared for. Did you promote Mark Williams, by the way, at some point when they took off? Um, Mark Williams went to work for uh, A&M. Right, I remember that. Yeah, I, I, I did try to get him to come work at IRS, but he got a real job with, uh, with with A&M Records. But let me ask you a question, Brian. When you go back yeah. and you listen to, say, to, to Murmur, and you listen to a song like Talk About the Passion, yes, which at the time I was convinced was an absolute smash right down the middle. I mean, there's nothing obscure about that. You can understand the words, etc. Do you really think that song's that weird? No, but Chronic Town's super weird. And uh, uh, no, Murmur, the answer is it takes you a few other than, other than maybe two songs on that album, you have to listen a bunch of times to like figure out what's going on. That's how I finally got into R.E.M. Yeah. was a guy at my college said, I was going through a really sad time as you often do your sophomore year of college. And uh, <laughs> a, a friend of mine said, take, I, cause I had missed Murmur and Reckoning cause I saw them and I didn't like them when they opened for the police. And then a friend of mine gave me, lent me Murmur and Reckoning. And he said, just listen to these keep them on when you're like cleaning your room or doing homework or whatever, and just let them seep in. And I did. That's why you driving around in the car makes sense to me. And I let those records seep in. And then like, oh, 10 days later, I knew every, you know, to the extent you could figure out the words, I knew every word by heart and I knew every melody and they were my favorite band. Then that was it. Like, a, uh, but yeah, of course, talk about the passion immediately um, sticks out. So does Catapult, right? Catapult, you think to yourself, oh, that's a rock song, right? That just feels like a rock yeah. song. It started side two and it's like a rock song. But no, man, um, I think that laughing, for instance, yes, the melody's incredible, but how is anyone supposed to understand what the fuck that song is about? I mean, how are you supposed to yeah, understand I, what those I mean, words are? I understand are? the lyric thing, but I, I, what, my only point is that what I have found now, having lived through so many cycles of, of, of yes. different music and different trends and, and different genres as it's evolved, is that what inevitably happens is things that sound weird in 1980 sound mainstream yes. in 1990. Oh, that sound yes. weird in 1990 sound mainstream in 2000. And I so think forth. the best example of that is, is Pixies. I, I went with Pete Lubin and Howard Thompson and uh, Sue Drew to see Pixies at the World and uh, on the Surfer Rosa tour, because Howard was like, there's this band, one of us should sign them. I don't love them, but somebody here, they're good enough. And Lubin got it and was like, but the first time I saw Pixies, it was like Martians, man, right? It's like Martians. And then suddenly it's, um, it just grabs you. And like you say, you go listen to um, Doolittle Now, it's the most easy to understand album ever. But at the time, yeah. it seemed totally avant-garde. So you're right. But let's talk about this. This is what makes, yeah. I think, what we did as, this is, this is I think, the thing that makes what we did interesting. So uh, let me tell you another story about signing Please. a band that, that people thought I was crazy. So Please. I, when I was running MCA, I went to Europe a lot. And I was one of the, I mean, I was, you, know, you had Jimmy running Interscope and Lior at, at Def Jam and Monty at Universal and me at MCA. And I was sort of the, you know, the less flamboyant, let's put it that way, of, of the four and the less sure. kind of public and all the rest of that stuff. And one of the things that I did is I sourced bands from Europe because one of the other great things of um, IRS was that I had to learn the whole world. I mean, many times yeah. we had acts that didn't really sell enough in America, but we broke them in England or we broke them in France or we broke them in Japan. And I used to travel to all those places. I was in Japan once a year, Australia once a year, and Europe four or five times. I spent you know two or three months of the year based at Miles' house in, in London. So anyways, when I'm at MCA, I'm, I'm going over. I went and saw different people in London and so forth. And I got a tip about this band from Iceland that you need to go see in Paris. They're called Sigur Ross. I said, really? Okay, great. So I was going to Paris anyway. I went a couple days early, went and saw Sigur Ross absolutely blew my mind. Exactly the same kind of thing as seeing REM or seeing whatever, where it's like completely different. 
it's like nothing I'd ever seen. It was musically, and this is back to the musicality thing, super interesting, really interesting musically, the way it was orchestral, it had certain influence of classical music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I signed the band. On that same trip, I went to Denmark and I met with the guy who was running Universal over there and he, and he played me and said, he said, I've got this act. He says, nobody in, 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 it seems interested in, in America, but if you'd like it for America, I'd love you to take a listen. And he plays me this song called Barbie Girl by uh, a band called Aqua. And I don't know, you're not, you're not showing any reaction here, but it's this thing called, I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. It was this total, I mean, just trashy pop song but it was an absolute smash. Right, yeah, like what year do you think that was? What year do you think that was? That was in maybe 2000 or 2001 or something. Yeah, I mean, by that time, I was so deep into making movies that, and I hated pop music. I mean, I, that kind of pop music. I just yeah, wouldn't have, you, it just you, wouldn't you have hit me. heard it. I mean, it, yeah, it, it ended up. So anyways, the, the story is, is that I came back to America with two sort of, bands that I had harvested from my European. One was Barbie Girl, sure. Aqua, and the other one was Cigarettes. And so I played it for the executive team. And now, now, now MCA is, you know, 200 people or something. So I'm now playing it for going back to yes. what you were saying. I now have a lot of people to try to get the, the engine going, right, to get everybody to go. And so I play them first, the Barbie Girl song, and, and whatever, and the head of promotions listening going, wow this is a hit record. I can get this played everywhere. And everyone's like all excited and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I thought that band was so mediocre. It was right. just like, Oh my God, were they horrible? I, and now I probably shouldn't ever say a band's horrible, but, but you know, I yeah, just to you, they just weren't your thing really personally. Yeah. You just recognized it was a hit. It was like, I would never listen to that record. And yet I was certain it was a hit record. Right. And so they are all excited. So then I said, well, I signed two bands while I was gone. And I, and I played them a cigarette song, which of course I picked the shortest one, which is like seven minutes. And, you know, and at the end of this incredible song, this journey, um, I, I, the head of promotion stops, it's very quiet in the room. And he looks at me and he said, what language are they speaking right. in, singing in? And I said, uh, their own. He goes, that's nice. That's great. That's, That's hilarious. Really great. <laughs> but it ended up being, they ended up being such an important artist. I mean, such Absolutely. an important artist, you know, and, and, uh, and ended of course. Up selling out the last time they played LA, they sold out the Hollywood Bowl too. No, of, of course. I'm saying that, you know, um, I didn't miss them. No, and that reminds me of uh, another, you know, I, I got to get actually Howard on this podcast at some point because his, his career was so in incredible. But, you know, I remember the moment he walked um, uh, Einar and Bjork into Elektra. I mean, I remember like it was yesterday. I was standing in the middle of that little, uh, the small Elektra A&R thing, you know, 75 Rock. And, and he just came back from Iceland and he's like, these people are coming up. And he walked in with them. And I mean, all you had to do was just look at them. And, 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 you know, then he played the music for all of us. But looking at Bjork and Einar in his, his office and, and then hearing that music was another one of those times where you just had to, had to recalibrate what you thought even music was. But how did you then get people? This is, I think, useful for anyone in any business. Because I remember when my friend Gary Harris was working for me at, at EMI and he brought D'Angelo to me and, and Michael played on the piano two songs. And I said, yep. Got to sign that guy. That's a total genius. And we signed him together. It was Gary's artist. He brought it to me. But I definitely, it was definitely the two of us signed the artist. But when they were making the record, a guy running the record company wanted to drop them halfway through. They didn't understand because it was so different from what was on the radio that they thought would get played. To me, it was so clear, even though, as it was to you. To me, what was clear, no matter what, didn't have to be the kind of music I was listening to. It didn't have to be what everyone else loved. It was so clear to me. Well, that's a musical genius. So that that's genius. Uh, nobody sounds like that. And that's a positive. I was very bad at having the patience when something, and it's, I still am, when something is that clear to me, I have a very hard time uh, 
communicating in a calm, patient way to change people's minds. But to become a successful exec, and so it's fine because I became an artist, so I could just be like, I'm doing my thing and get with it or don't, and I'll go to someone else. But you were an executive, so you had to learn how to do that. So how did you do it? How, how, how do you language it? To be honest with you, it was the same as what I did at IRS with REM. If you want to take Cigaras. Yeah, is take Cigaras. found champions in the marketplace. Outside of the company, places. you mean? Outside I of the company. Myself, I went out and, and played it for people and, and said, you know what? I, I'm not going to put all these huge expectations on everybody. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. And so I went out and actually got certain key tastemakers and certain people within the press and, and radio and, 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 and people who fell in love with it. Plus, there was a great story building already in the UK and across Europe. So I got that information and then just sort of built the undercurrent of it to the point where that, that head of promotion was off and he did incidentally, uh, Barbie by uh, Aqua, Barbie girl ended up being, I think number two single in the country. Sure. And sold Three million albums or some, it was like the biggest song for 14 year olds of, of that year. Um, but so he was off getting that played. And meanwhile, the press department and the college radio department and the, the, those folks and I were out there building the undercurrent of Cigaras that over a period of time, but listen, Brian, it didn't happen overnight. I mean, no, of course. They, the, it took a long time. It took us, and, and, and we only had a three album deal is the truth. Um, so it took us probably at least a year to really get it to the point where it really, I think we sold 250,000 albums of that first that first record. Which now would be massive, massive, massive. But then it was just like a win. It wasn't a massive win. It was just a win at that time. Right. But it was the beginning of an important... Um, an important artist. And I think you know, I was telling somebody the other day about REM that, you know, like Chronic Town sold 25,000. The Murmur, in, you know, sold like 125,000. Uh, you know... Uh, Re Reckoning. Yeah. Reckoning was at like 275 fables was like 350 or 400 and then we really broke through to a million with um with um not Dr. life's life's rich, life's rich pageant. pageant um and 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 that had you know uh well true because what happened was each record right so the second record had or third record what it called south central rain on it and then then you had can't get there from here and driver eight on you know uh uh, fables so those really were records that you could pl get played and then on that tour they started playing fall on me and uh that was being played on the tour before that album and then yes. on the and then on the life switch pageant tour i'll never forget as long as i live going to see life switch pageant tour at the wang center and they played the one, the I, one I, they played the one i love that wasn't out yet and yeah. they played the one i love at the wang center and i remember just standing there with my college buddies and knowing, holy shit, they're going to be the biggest band in the world. Like our favorite band is not going to be our band anymore. Because yeah. that song, I remember, I, I, I couldn't understand how they had done that. And I mean, I'm sure that when you fucking heard it, I, I was, okay, here, I got to ask you this. Because, so for people who don't know this, at a certain point, right after R.E.M. became huge, uh, Warner Brothers made a gigantic offer. IRS couldn't keep them and they left. And they had to go take the $80 million deal at Karen Berg signed them at Warner Brothers. And then they became the biggest band in the world. So was it bittersweet to you as Document is coming out and as, you know, is it Life Switch pageant? And as you then see sort of where this is trending and you see well, what's happening. Leave, yeah, but the timing is important here because yes. Document, it, it was long after Document was out. It was after. No, no, Document's your record, obviously. And, and. Yes. But but then Green is then they Warner Brothers. Right. So yeah, at the end of Document, or not the end, but we were. But I mean, we sold you know a couple million albums of Document. Yes. I mean, they they were breaking around the world and, and and all the rest of it. And that's when the sort of derby began and in Warner's, and they kept up in the ante and up in the ante and up in the ante. And I think that um, it did was it hurt your feelings. I have to ask you this because I always want to know from executives. People should hear executive like, did it hurt your feelings that they? Took the money. Like, was there a moment where it felt sad to you, um, emotionally? We, they, I flew down. They, they had sort of run this kind of sweepstakes, if you will. I mean, they did it in a very classy way. But they were talking to all the labels. They wanted to see all their options. 
And it came down to us and Warner Brothers. And we were still in it, arguably. And I don't think they would have lied to me. I think they, they were yeah, telling sure. me. The truth. And they finally made their decision. They rang me up and they said, come on down to Atlanta, to, to Athens. And so I didn't know if I was going down there to hear that we were keeping the band or we were losing the band. Uh. And they told me, all the band members. I mean, they didn't do it on a lawyer. They didn't do it over the phone. Talk about class. That's people. so elegant. So what happened? What did they say? We were all like crying. Everybody was crying in the room because, I mean, I, I think it was Michael. One of them said, listen, at the end of the day, no one could have done for us what IRS did for the time period that IRS did it. There's not another record company, not another group of people. You guys were absolutely unique and the right place for us. Today, we're where we need to go. We feel we need a big organization that has all kinds of weapons and leverage and so forth. And that's something that IRS can't do. Yeah. And, and, and Warner Brothers can. Yeah. And, you know, he, he said something, someone, I can't remember. One of them said, the red phone is not on your desk. Oh, that's <laughs> a great line. The Batman line, right? Yeah. And, and, and I was like devastated. You say, was I upset? I was devastated. Right. I mean, fucking devastated. And hurt too, not just as a business, not just as a businessman, you were emotionally No, personally. Hurt. I was like, I, there was no part of my mind, body, or wallet that oh. I did not throw behind REM for the previous seven years, right? right. And, and I had ended up being validated because if I had a dollar for every time, I mean, you remember that guy, Alon Levy? Of course, yes. Okay. So he, he ran Polygram and poly, he ran Polygram and everything. Yeah. He ran Polygram and EMI. I mean, he yeah. became a hugely successful figure in the music industry. So when I first met him, he was running CBS in France. He was the director of CBS. And I went in and played him uh, Murmur. And um, Murmur at that time was like, you know, number one on college radio in America. And we'd sold, I don't know how much. It wasn't huge, but it was really going. And they'd been on, they had the Rolling Stone thing and so forth. He wouldn't release the record. Yeah. He said it was just rubbish. It's just not, we're not going to release this in France. And he threw me out of his office. Uh, he yes. absolutely threw me out of his office. And I must say that, 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 that years later, I went back to his office when he was running Polygram at the time for some other sort of business. And I said, so how did, how do you think, how do you feel about that decision to not re release REM? And he just smiled at me and he just said, well, you know, we're not always right. Um, in terms of that, but the point so satisfying is, though, right? So satisfying to get to go great. back to his office. Yeah. But to lose the band that I had gone <laughs> yeah. through those battles, and I mean, if I had a dollar for every time that someone told me, you know, the guy can't sing and you can't yeah. understand what he says and every song sounds the same and, you know, all that bullshit just again and again and again. And, and, and then to have been validated by them really becoming one of the bigger bands in the world. And I think one of the more important um, you know, from a musical evolution standpoint, they just started a whole thing. I mean, how many bands were say, well, I mean, this is sort of following in the footsteps of REM. It just was a bummer for them to go. But listen, they did great and God bless them. And we're all here today and we're healthy. And yeah, happy. of course. How, how did you, uh, Jay, pivots are fascinating to me. And so you have this great career in the music business. The music business changes and we don't have to go through all those changes, but the music business you started in grew and grew and grew. And then, you know, like a meteor hit it and uh, you decided to pivot. Uh, and I'm sure talk a little bit about um, there must have been a moment or two in the wilderness before you discovered this wine thing. And I look, you're, you're someone who you went to Harvard Business School. You're, 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 you had a lot of options. On the other hand, I imagine it must have been a little strange for you when suddenly the music business that you knew and loved kind of ceased to exist and your place in it kind of ceased to exist for a moment. How did you think about that period of time? How did you refine a passion for something else? And what made you want to take the risk to do this incredible wine business? So I think it's interesting. You talk about a pivot. It was never really a pivot for me. And what I mean by that is that I've been very lucky that 
I started out with a passion for music and that we covered that earlier and started with my grandfather being this amazing musician in San Francisco and, and, and sort of giving me this inspiration. And that was a genuine passion. Right. I think when you're chasing something, when your avocation can be your vocation yes. and you find a way to take something that you are authentically passionate about, it is a different experience. It's not a yes. job. It's, yes. it's, it's a way of life. Now, you do have workaholic issues. You do have issues about separating right. your private life from your, your professional life because it all becomes one. And so that is a, is, is a challenge. But I discovered wine in college. Uh, my roommate worked for a wine distributor and we had um, somehow he got me involved in this thing where I had tasted some Robert Mondavi wine and I had this epiphany where I'm like going, Jack Daniels, beer, this wine, it's with food, girls like wine. I, 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 this is interesting to me. And I always love to cook. And so when we were starting IRS in the early days and I had multiple roommates, we would go buy wine at Trader Joe's. And then I started going up to Santa Barbara and visiting wineries. I met this guy, Jim Clendenin. Uh, in the in the 80s, who unfortunately, tragically, just recently died. He was the guy that started Aubon Clément, which is a really influential Burgundian-styled uh, winery in the Santa Barbara uh, area, uh, Santa Inez. And, and I started building these relationships in wine, and I started buying wine. I didn't have any money. Then I bought, I met this guy named Kermit Lynch, who's a, people in wine will definitely recognize that name. He is one of the top importers. He was, Brian, what you and I would call an A&R guy in wine. He imported, he went to Europe all around the world. Sure. He didn't have any domestic wine. And he found these little indie winemakers and said, wow, this is a cut above. This is Cigarras. Right. This is REM. This is whatever it is. And he imported them into, uh, got exclusive importation rights to import them into America. And he built one of the most successful kind of boutique import businesses. And he became a friend. And it turned out he was a big music guy. So he would turn me on to these winemakers awesome. early on. And I was turning him on to music. And this I'm talking about, I met him, I think, in 85. So wine has been a very big part of my life. All the time I was in the music business, when we would do events, like we would go at IRS, we would go to some big convention and you had Sony and Warners yeah. and all the big, they're taking everybody out and doing these big things, spending shit tons of money. We didn't have that. So what did I do? I had this idea. You know what? I know these winemakers. I'm going to invite a winemaker, fly him to Boston where this convention is. We'll get just a simple, nothing fancy, a simple restaurant. We'll invite everybody over to a wine dinner. I won't pitch the bands. It won't be about the music. We'll just do a wine dinner and we'll build relationships. And so I became known as the wine guy right. in terms of within music. And still to this day, when I go to Boston or, or other places, I now see music people who come out to the wine dinners that we do. Yeah, of course. We're actually at a wine dinner that I had awesome. done 20 years yeah. before. So this, this love of wine and passion for the artistry of it, and, and it's very similar. Making wine and making music are very similar in terms of it's sort of half creative and then half it's about execution and, you know, having equipment. That all makes sense of your love of wine and your knowledge of it and becoming an expert in the best way, which is because you loved it. But deciding that after a lifetime of being in the music business and the success you had, that you're going to sort of put it all on the line for a totally different business. Did it, was it scary at any phase or did you know you could do it? No, I, it was definitely scary, but you have to understand, I, I am cursed with being a serial entrepreneur. Right. So I, I am, you know, one of the only ways that you can say yes, when Miles asks you to start IRS and says, I can't pay you anything, is if you have to have almost like blind belief that, well, I can do any, we can do this. Yes. And, and it's the same thing with the winery. I mean, it's also because of my partner. My, my partner, Jean-Nicolas Mayo, is uh, who I met in the in the 80s he went to school with my sister at penn um he went back after he was at penn getting his master's uh, uh, to then run the family winery called Mayo yeah. Canada, which is literally one of the top five domains in burgundy i mean his wines are 
fantastic, but I have now gotten to the point where they're so expensive and so allocated that none of my friends can right. find them. And when they find them, they can't really afford them. Yeah. But, but he's a great winemaker. And when he agreed to do this with me in Oregon and be a partner with me, not be a consultant, not help out, but actually him and I do it together, that really improved the odds. Because it sure. was almost like, remember when you had a, a, a new band, the key wasn't so much you knew if somebody heard it, they would like it. But the yes. key was, how do I get in there? Yes. Because it's like, you know, getting into WLS in Chicago was not easy. No, of course. Getting that five minutes to be able to get that guy to listen to that song or that woman to listen to that song, that was the key. It's the same thing with wine. You have to, there's so many wineries and so many people pitching the sommeliers. I mean, think of the parallels here, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Sommeliers at restaurants, they're like, the deed that like the program directors at radio stations, the buyers at the retail shops are like the buyers that used to be at tower and, and Kent mill and, you know, all the different retail shops. And the thing that was different for us, if you and I made Nicolas made the wine and it was exactly it is today, same quality, same everything. We would never be having the level of success that we're having. We're having the success because of Jean Nicolas reputation. Everybody was willing to try it. And then, as Jean Nicolas says, thank God the wine was good. Well, because yeah. we got the entree and then they tasted it and they thought, shit, wow, okay. This it is, is really excellent. It is excellent. Nicola Jay is a great wine. And um, Jay, thanks for this. Your career is fascinating to me. You're a great guy. You've done incredible things. And, uh, and I love that you're still as passionate now as you were when you were at college, you know, booking bands. Um, a great way to live, Brian. I think life is more fulfilling if you're passionate. It's true. Um, the fact no that, different than you, my friend. The fact that you mentioned Al Demiola in the same breath as Zappa is funny to me. Uh, but uh, other than that, I think I agree with every other thing that you said. Uh, for me, Demiola was great, but just a lot of notes. A lot of notes. It was hard for me to amazing uh, guitar players. Yes, incredible guitar players. I loved Return to Forever and a lot of that music too with Jocko. Um, Hey, man, thanks for doing this. I'll see you soon. Uh, give a huge hug to Lynn for me. And uh, folks, try the wine. If, if uh, it's not insanely expensive, it's, uh, go find it at a store. Order it from them. It'll be maybe too expensive in a restaurant, but you can find it and try it on, on your own. And, and come visit us in Oregon. We've got a lovely place, and we'd love to host everybody. It's a great experience. Visit it's them. If you haven't been to the Willamette Valley, it's about 45 minutes west of Portland and it's it's spectacular. And we say that you're friends of Brian and you will be treated like a king or queen. Well, yeah, when I'm in LA working on Super Pumped, I was saying to Amy that we'll take some weekend trips on the West Coast to places that it's harder for us to get to. So I'll come, I'm gonna come for sure. Like when you're there, I'll come and we'll great. hang out. Be All great. right, man. I'll host you. Thanks so much for this. Folks, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on uh, Twitter. Jay, are you are you're on Instagram or the wineries yes. on Instagram? At, at Nicholas J with no H, N-I-C-O-L-A-S-J-A-Y. Go Nicholas. to Nicholas J Wine. Uh, uh, you'll find it uh, on Instagram. All right, Jay, I'll talk to you soon, Thanks man. Be well. Much. Take care, Brian. Thanks a bunch.